0: Welcome to Peelpod's Just Environmental Law, debating environmental law and justice for everyone.
1: Brought to you by Public Interest Environmental Law UK. Hello, Alex.
0: And Izzy here.
1: In the second episode of this series, we will be discussing air quality. This is an issue which has recently been subject to a rising level of public concern and awareness. And today, We will delve into what it is, how it affects us, and what makes it such a complex issue to tackle, both in law and policy. We are lucky enough to have with us two guests who are truly on the front line of their professional field in tackling air pollution. Our first guest today is Andrea Lee. Andrea has a wealth of experience working on sustainability projects and campaigns in the UK, the US and Spain. In 2013, she joined Client Earth, an environmental law charity that works tirelessly to battle environmental issues by creating systemic change, where she still works today. At Client Earth, she coordinates the Healthy Air campaign and is currently the campaigns and policy manager for clean air, working to foster a society-wide transformation in how air pollution is understood and mounting pressure on the government to take more action in the pursuit of cleaner air.
0: Our second guest, Professor Eloise Scotford, is one of the most sought-after voices in environmental law in the UK. She currently works in the Faculty of Laws at UCL, where she has carried out leading research on legislative processes, environmental principles, climate change governance, among many other topics. From 2017 to 2018, she conducted a British Academy-funded empirical research project on air quality. She has advised DEFRA, the UN, the Commonwealth Secretariat, and is currently an associate member of Landmark Chambers.
1: Andrea, Eloise... Thank you so much for joining us today. I think the best way to begin our discussion on the topic of air pollution would be quite simply an explanation of what it is. It is something which has been rising in different spheres of public discussion, but for many, including myself, it has remained somewhat of an elusive concept. Eloise, if you'd like to kick us off.
2: Thanks very much, Alex. Well, I think one thing that's really important in thinking about air pollution as a problem is that it's not a homogeneous problem. There's not one kind of air pollution. There's lots of different kinds of air pollution. Um, and I'll just give you a quick sketch of some of the, the kind of the main pollutants we worry about. And it's important to do that because when we think about trying to control them, we actually need to think about different strategies for different kinds of pollutants. So one that we talk about a lot at the moment is nitrogen dioxide. That's a pollutant, uh, like sulfur dioxide, which is a product of combustion, all sorts of different combustion processes, whether they be in cars, factories, other forms of um, industrial installations, a wide range of sectors to people's fireplaces. There's lots of lots of different sources. Now, that's one kind of problem. Um, then we have what is increasingly recognised as a uh, an air pollution problem, which is thinking about pollutants, not by their chemical uh, components, but by their size. So we think about particulate matter. Um, and this is where whether a, a, a pollutant is harmful or not harmful, its size matters, um, it, whether it's harmful chemically or not, its size matters. And we've realised over time but particulate matter getting smaller and smaller can pose different kinds of risks to human health in particular. So we worry about PM10. Which is particulate matter that measures 10 micrometres in diameter. Then we get down to PM2.5. And now increasingly we're worrying about ultrafine particles. And that's actually a quite a good tracking of the regulatory story around these pollutants because in law we recognise two of those, PM10 and PM2.5, but we don't yet recognise ultrafine particles. Whatever we say today about air pollution and its control is part of an evolving story. Then the other kinds of pollutants which we shouldn't forget about, are, I mean, there's the toxic chemicals, the heavy heavy metals that can come out of different processes that we worry about if they're in the air because they're very bad for human health. There's persistent organic pollutants, which are pollutants that move through uh, biological chains and bioaccumulate, and never break down the forever chemicals, which can be part of the air pollution problem. And then there's an air pollutant that I think we don't think about as much at the moment, but is increasingly going to become a problem for us to think about. And it is a regulated air pollutant, which is ground level ozone. Now, this is something that is the product of nitrogen dioxide and volatile organic compounds reacting with heat and light. And this is a very difficult regulatory target, because you don't know where it's going to end up. Ground level ozone tends to be the product of pollutants that have moved through weather, um, winds and so on, and uh, have ended up creating a pollution problem in not necessarily a very easily predictable place. So in a sense, we've got this different suite of pollutants caused by different sources that are diverse. And some of these problems are well known, some of them are new. And the thing they probably have in common is they're all really bad for human health. So that, in a sense, is the motivating, a very motivating uh, reason to tackle air pollution. But if we start trying to break it down, we need to understand that there are these different pollutants. And one of the risks, I think, at the moment is that when we focus, as we tend to have tended to recently, on roadside emissions and nitrogen dioxide, which is a very serious problem, we think that's the only air pollution problem. Or maybe one of the, the one that's the priority when there are others that, that, that we need to worry about.
3: Yeah so as Eloise has noted the, the reason why we care about air pollution in all its complex forms is because of the way that it affects people's health. There's a wealth of ever-growing evidence showing how it affects people from the time that we're in the womb and all the way through to old age. It can affect all of us in different ways. Some of us, you know, will think that, you know, we're relatively fit and healthy and that it doesn't actually affect us, but what it does to many of us is is slowly sort of add into those of health risk factors that are gradually cutting our lives short. Or causing some build-up of of harm in our bodies. So you know air pollution has been linked to things like heart attacks and strokes. In fact the biggest health impact is through impact on the cardiovascular system which I think surprises a lot of people. It obviously impacts on breathing conditions as we would imagine so it really exacerbates conditions such as COPD, can trigger asthma attacks and also increase the risk that these uh, will become so severe that the person might need to be hospitalized or as as we've learned from the very sad case of Ella, Duki, Sedebra, could also actually to death. There's also increasing evidence linking it to cognitive development, suggestions that it could be linked to things like autism. But also scientists are finding particles of air pollution, especially from sources such as road traffic, in people's brain tissues. So there's a, a study showing that yeah, brain tissue from people living in places like Manchester in the UK have these tiny particles of uh, road tra- traffic pollution Uh, in brain tissue. And that's where we think that there are potential links to things like dementia. Lots of studies have highlighted how potentially air pollution could be affecting children's ability to learn. Uh, Lots of other physical and mental well-being problems in the mix. So I think that it does show that there is a real strong need for urgent action. And also, increasingly, it's important to recognise also that we'll be talking a lot about legal limits of air pollution that exist at the moment, but more and more evidence is showing that there's a health impact below our existing UK legal limits, but also below what some of World Health Organisation air quality guidelines also signal. So it's an evolving issue, and it's also one that we just need to make sure that we are continuously tackling and improving people's air quality all round.
1: What makes this problem challenging from a legal perspective?
2: Gosh, where do you start, Alex? I think the, from a legal perspective, there's a number of stages of complexity. One is identifying the problem in the first place. Now that's partly just a matter of collecting data, but that is a challenging exercise. Gathering data about air quality requires monitoring. Some of it can be done through modeling. But once you start doing monitoring, you have to monitor well. And when you use modeling techniques, you need to model well. So there's lots of serious thought over where physical monitors are sited, what what locations they're in, and how how models created to get good data on air quality levels. So just figuring out where the areas are where there are air pollution issues is 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 a is, is the first challenge. Now, Once you figure out what the air quality actually is in a certain physical location, trying to identify the sources of that air pollution, if air pollution is detected, is the next step. And that is another kind of layer of complexity, if you like, because the air pollution at any given place is a combination of pollution from different sources. Some of those are mobile, like vehicles. Some of those are fixed like boilers in homes or in in industrial installations and they will combine and some of those pollutants will react so trying to break it down into the contributing sources for roadside emissions and local no2 levels of pollution it's it's easier for more complex pollution pathways in the atmosphere it can be harder to identify the sources so because there's diverse sources and diverse behaviors and sectors behind those sources, it then becomes quite a puzzle for law and regulation to figure out which levers need to be kind of pulled and how those regulatory levers are best coordinated to achieve a safe level of air quality. And in a sense, that's why we have generally quite a mixed regulation approach to achieving good air quality. We think about Industrial permitting. We think about design controls for cars. We think about industrial processes and controlling them. We think about product standards, particularly for things like fuel. We think about planning law and we think about, and then we have to think about how all these things add up. Now, all of that is quite complex and it's why the most powerful thing we have in air quality law is setting the outcome that we want to achieve in law. setting ambient air quality standards because however we manage to control those sources, we know that we need to achieve an outcome, which is that those combinations or collective pollution levels don't exceed the levels that are dangerous for human health. So we have ambient air quality standards. They're set in law. They're really important, but they're not the whole picture. There's a whole level of kind of delivering those air quality standards that requires added layers of regulation in different sectors and in different spheres and really sets up that kind of coordination challenge.
0: So following on from that it might be useful to talk now at a high level about the underlying legal framework in the UK for tackling air quality and perhaps some of the challenges that that framework is facing.
2: Yes so if we just take air quality standards because that's the 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 centrepiece really of air quality law what we want to have as our ambient air quality standards, that those standards will exist for different pollutants, nitrogen dioxide, sulphur dioxide, ozone, particulate matter and so on. We actually have a number of different, well, at least two different legal frameworks, about to be three, for setting those standards. The main one, which we now have in UK law as retained EU law post-Brexit, but derives from the EU Ambient Air Quality Directive, Directive two thousand and eight hundred and fifty, and that sets out limit values for the main harmful pollutants that have been identified as uh, being regulated at at, at the EU level. Now, that directive has been around for a while. It has set mandatory limits that must be met for these different pollutants uh, without exception. it sets various standards, but it sets these very strict limit values. So that's kind of a very clear framework. We know we have to achieve those things in law. In England, we have another layer of of, of kind of regulation for air quality that sits at the local level. And that's in the Environment Act 1995, where there's a regime of local air quality governance. And this puts obligations on local authorities to review air pollution in their areas, to declare air quality management areas where their air pollution standards are exceeded and to come up with air quality action plans in their local areas for exercising the powers they have as local authorities to try and, or in pursuit of those air quality standards. So we have that local level. But ultimately those EU standards, which are mandatory, binding on the Secretary of State, central government to achieve those standards, and if they're not achieved, to create to, to set out air quality plans that will achieve them. And at this point in time, those plans need to achieve those limit values that are being exceeded in the shortest possible time. Now, what that has set up, the fact that we have kind of an EU derived regime that puts an obligation, an overarching obligation to reach air quality standards on central government and the, the the relevant minister needs to make sure they're achieved and introduce plans, but there's also a local regime, is there's a bit of a lack of joining up about whether central government or local government is ultimately responsible for the achievement of those standards. We can see in the central government plans that there's a huge amount of reliance on what is happening at the local government level to try and achieve air quality standards. And just to add in the third level of complexity, as at the moment we have the environment bill going through Parliament, which will allow the setting of new air quality standards. And we know that we're going to get at least two air quality standards, ambient air quality standards of some character. We don't know exactly what they're going to look like, set under that bill. Now, what's important about the legal framework here is that it won't have exactly the same character as a legal obligation as the mandatory obligations that come through EU law. There won't be the same requirement to plan to achieve those new standards in the shortest possible time. But they will still be divorced from the local air quality management plan or local air quality management Framework for achieving air quality standards. So, we'll, we, we'll get to a point where we have these three different frameworks for air quality standards and we're going to have to put them together. Now, they're all trying to head in the same direction. They're all trying to achieve roughly the same standards, mobilizing, if you like, government at different levels towards those standards. But there is a bit of confusion about where the ultimate responsibility for achieving those standards
1: lies. In order to meet these legal standards, that process is manifested in policy. So what kind of systems are there in place that currently try to meet those legal standards and mitigate air quality?
3: That's part of the problem, isn't it? That sort of then really sort of jumps to the fact that from our point of view at Client Earth, the UK government hasn't been doing enough. And in particular, uh, this was proven by the fact that we failed, to the UK government failed to meet the legal limits for nitrogen dioxide that should have been met back in 2010 because it wasn't putting those plans in place, those measures in place to actually take action. In response to that situation, that's where we had to engage with DEFRA back in 2011, once it was clear that the legal limits hadn't been met in 2010. And when it was clear that DEFRA didn't have intention to meet its legal duties under the Ambient Air Quality Directive, which required it to produce plans in the event that it didn't meet the legal limits by 2010, that it would have to produce plans to show how it was going to meet those legal limits in as short time as possible and no later than 2015. At the time in 2011, DEFRA was not in our view meeting its obligations to do this for all the air quality zones in the UK that were still breaching legal limits of nitrogen dioxide and that's where we had to take it to court. It wasn't because the UK government disputed the fact that it was breaching legal limits. It just disagreed with us as to what its responsibilities were. And that took a four years of litigation before we could get to the conclusion where the UK Supreme Court was then able to not just say, yes, there have been breaches, but also that the UK government has broken the law in terms of not producing these plans and subsequently ordered the government to produce air quality plans by the end of 2015 that would show how it was going to comply with legal limits and the shortest plan possible. It's all very complicated. There's been a lot of plans for plans <laughs> that have been triggered by this. Going on from there, I mean, our view was that the 2015 plans that were produced in response to our first legal challenge were actually woefully inadequate. And that's why we had to then take them back to court two or three times to get them to act. Part of that, I think, um, I mean, Eloise earlier said that there's been a lot of reliance on action at a local level. I guess our view would be that the government has actually passed the buck to local authorities from our point of view, that even though it's quite clear that it needed that it, the legal duty to meet these legal limits, sits with the secretary of state it was very much seeing it as a local problem for them to deal with and therefore a lot of the plans that the government produced were plans for local authorities to make plans to see how they would meet these legal limits so gets very entangled and very confused unfortunately
0: i wanted to ask to just speak a little bit more about the challenges of multi-level governance you mentioned local national dichotomy and the issues that can create so for example you've written about the fact that a local authority may just be focusing on meeting a particular target in a particular area, which doesn't actually tackle the wider issue of pollution, because you may just be displacing the pollution. You could just speak a bit more to the challenges that that local national distinction creates.
2: If we think about why there's been all this litigation in the UK, and we go back to the original air quality plans, They really relied very heavily on local government action. And the reason why that I think is is inherently a problem is kind of what you're asking about, Izzy, is that if you think in a particular local authority, they might identify that there are certain hotspots that need dealing with. And that's exactly what, in one sense, the regime under the Environment Act 1995 is meant to be about identifying hotspots a local authority might realise that it has a, a relevant sampling point that contributes to national compliance with air quality standards that is currently being exceeded. An easy way to ensure compliance if the local authority is being asked to ensure compliance at the at the national level is for roads to be rerouted, for example, and that's not, in a sense, problematic from the perspective of the local authority because it's the kind of thing it has control over. What it doesn't have control over is how much traffic moves through its area necessarily. It doesn't have control over standards for technical standards or technological standards that are being promoted for vehicles across the country necessarily. I mean, some local authorities will have procurement power over their local bus fleets and things, not all. But there are bigger structural measures that are really important for the pollution that ends up in a local authority that the local authority doesn't have control over actually governing. And that's where the the mismatch starts to come in, is that if structural measures are required, which are beyond the competence of a local authority, Be they around investment in new technology, be they around the movement of people across the country and vehicles across the country, be they around the siting of industrial facilities. Those things are beyond the control of a local authority. So there's only so much it has the powers to do. So if it's asked to fix a problem locally, it will do what it can within its powers but it won't be able to do more. But what's really interesting about the plans that were set out and, you know, in a sense that client earth litigation has led to what I think, and I'm not sure after the infraction proceedings that have been successful in the European courts very recently, whether our current 2017 plan in fact is lawful anymore, but we got to a point where we had a lawful plan. And a key component of the lawful plan we had was the introduction of clean air zones, which was still a very local solution and allowing different local authorities to introduce clean air zones that seem to be right for them. But the again, what we have is a solution that is locally driven, but not necessarily keeping in mind what is the what are the biggest structural moves that might need to be made on transport, on joining up cities, on uh, movements across the country that have an impact on per- on air pollution to put it very shortly there are certain things that local governments can do to control air pollution depending on the kind of pollution uh, and we're kind of focusing on nitrogen dioxide because that's where there's been non-compliance with the european limits but there's certain things that they can't do and in a sense would need to work in partnership with other public authorities or with central government to make a real difference on the causes of of that kind of of those
1: kinds of air pollution if the problem is so serious why has the central government not taken on the responsibility and passed the buck down to local government and is this something which is kind of intertwined with politics which thereby hinders any progress being made
3: yeah so it gets said a lot but it's true for a long time air pollution has simply been an invisible public health crisis You know, I talk to a lot of people who still remember the smog events that we used to have in the UK right up to the 70s. People who lived through the great smog of 1952 that finally triggered the first Clean Air Act. And you'd have people describing how they can very much taste and feel the air pollution in the air around them. You know, the, the smoke that came from people burning coal at home, from uh, the fact that our factories, our power stations, were right in the cities and the towns where we lived. And that pollution was very hard to miss. <laughs> in fact, they, they often cause situations where you couldn't see anything but. And what's happened since is that uh, we took out coal burning from our towns and cities, and then we replaced them with things like vehicles, uh, which are a more efficient way of burning fossil fuels, but in that efficiency, they basically produce those smaller particles and gases that we've talked about before, which are really hard to see. And unless you have got one of those health conditions where your symptoms can be triggered by it, it can be quite difficult for people to kind of realise how it is affecting them day to day. Our society sort of works on a little bit on the basis that if people don't complain, then you know there's so many needs out there that if they don't complain, then some politicians will choose not to act. So there is a an issue of of politics, but I think you know it was definitely shouldn't be a party political issue. The problem that we're in at the moment has been a problem of successive governments dating back for decades, where you know legal limits should have been achieved by two thousand and ten, so action should have been taken earlier. And and successive and current governments have also chosen not to take a very, in our view, proactive or or very urgent approach to dealing with the problem that is that it says it fully accepts. So. You know, this, this at the same time also is, is, is means that there's a lack of political will. And because um, in terms of, as we've been speaking about the illegal levels of air pollution, with the analysis that about 80% of the problem of illegal levels of air pollution in towns and cities is, is due to road transport, and quite often a lot of it's from diesel vehicles, you get that added problem of the sort of divisive nature of, of being seen to address uh, or trying to change or affect how people choose to travel which you know gets very confused with uh, being seen as anti-motorists then politicians do not like being seen as anti-motorists because it's a very strong motoring lobby and so this has all kind of for many years just led to a lot of inaction unfortunately and I think where people are starting to realize is that you know air pollution is not It's not just an environmental problem that if you don't care about the environment, it doesn't matter, that it's actually a health problem that is affecting all of us. It's affecting children. It's affecting older people, It's affecting people with chronic illnesses. There's also increasing um, awareness of the fact that it also has an unequal impact on our society. So you have people from low incomes or from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds who tend to be more exposed to the problem, even though they uh, potentially contribute less uh, to the problem in that so uh, these communities that tend to live on the, the busier roads that if you can afford to not live on you would not this also really means that there hasn't been a, a big political push to to really take on the problem and address what we've all known really for a long time is that you know emissions from motor vehicles are not good for us that we do need to clean these up there's there's signs that that's that's changing that people are recognizing that and then joining the dots but we still have quite a long way to
1: go. It's interesting you say that because it strikes me that we're living through a time where a public health emergency, where resources have been mobilised and society fundamentally shifted and the coordinated action of central and local government. I wonder what, is, what makes the perception of the problem of air pollution so different as to engender such a muted response in comparison to COVID-19. And I wonder from a legal perspective, Eloise, how, how much of an effect... Would framing the issue as a public health emergency have?
2: Well, I think it potentially has a very big impact. I know um, Professor Stephen Holgate, who's a real expert on the the public health side of air pollution. He's a big advocate of seeing this as a as a health department issue or a health issue rather than an an environmental protection issue, and that that reframing would focus minds on seeing it for what it is. I mean, I think. I think we're heading in this direction of seeing it as a broader emergency kind of of, of, of air pollution as a broader emergency problem, and I think the COVID nineteen pandemic has accelerated that for air pollution. It's made people much more aware of the air that they're breathing, <laughs> that it's safe to breathe for health reasons. It's made people aware that air pollution levels can drop when behaviour changes, and that coordinated government action is actually possible when the political will is there. On the other side of the pandemic, I think there's reasons for hope in thinking about the tackling of air pollution. If you look at some of the early compliance cases that the or the enforcement cases that the EU Commission brought against some EU member states, their reactions were it's too hard structurally to shift our societies to achieve these air pollution limits. Now that was never a good legal answer, but it was a very good, I think it was a very true reflection of where certain countries felt their societies were at socially and economically, that they couldn't make the big structural moves on transport, on planning, on behaviour to actually reduce air pollution limits. But I think we're in post-pandemic and in a kind of a different world now, and public perception is a big part of that, but also government just working in a way that it does join up uh, to deal with urgent environmental and health problems. And I think we're seeing the same thing on climate change both of those big emergencies need the same kind of coordinated government effort.
0: Following on from that, another element of the pandemic, I think, is that there's research coming out now about the links between serious illness from COVID-19 or even death from COVID-19 and air pollution exposure and how the two are correlated. So it would be interesting, maybe starting with you, Andrea, to hear your thoughts on The intersection between air quality and environmental justice and how it's having an impact on some communities far more than others in a way that in some senses is a life or death matter in the context of the pandemic.
3: Yes, as you said, there's uh, lots of research that's been happening over the past year to see what the links are between COVID-19 and air pollution. And a lot of that will take some time to get through, because obviously thorough, robust research need be peer-reviewed, need analysis. But certainly what I'm hearing from experts is that their expert opinion is that it's, it's highly likely that there is a link between air pollution and people suffering worse from when they contract COVID and potentially also making them more susceptible for it. Certainly, COVID attacks the same health systems as air pollution. You know, the breathing system, the heart system, people who already are either more vulnerable or more exposed to air pollution will be a bit more predisposed to being affected by by COVID-19, I think is is a very definite educated guess by by the expert. It does raise a lot of issues as well on the inequality side of things, as it's highlighting how people from either low-paid jobs that we know we've started to recognise as key workers that keep Our communities and our societies go in, but are not uh, well remunerated, are more vulnerable to both COVID and air pollution as a risk. And also people from Black, Asian and minority ethnicities have also been identified. And so there's a big uh, issue around fairness and the equity problems that we've been seeing for a long time with air pollution have also been, I guess, magnified by by the pandemic. There's plenty of studies there showing that people from low-income households and from Black and Asian minority ethnic backgrounds tend to suffer more from the pollution. They live on those busy roads. They tend to have, at the same time, lower car ownership, use their cars less, use diesel cars less, actually, because diesel cars are more expensive to buy. And it's actually the kind of higher income households that have greater car ownership, tend to buy diesels, use them a lot more, and travel through these busy roads.
2: I'll add a quick point. There there has been consistently socio-legal research showing that air pollution is an environmental justice issue. I think what is good now is that that framing is becoming more dominant. As we can see that there are important questions to ask, as, as Andrea has pointed out, around who is impacted by air pollution and who causes it. And the COVID-19 pandemic, whilst I think a lot of the research that's being done is not yet finalised, is also asking those really important questions about who's at risk, which communities, and what's the fairness. And I think that it's that framing and those questions that are now being asked that are really, really important.
0: We've been speaking about what the issues are with the current framework. Um, It would be helpful to talk a bit about What action can be taken to improve this problem? Eloise, I'm going to start by asking you, in terms of the current legal framework, how can we reform and strengthen that so that we have a better legal response to these problems?
2: Uh, Well, at the moment, as I've mentioned, we've got this environment bill going through Parliament. And one thing it does, which is really interesting, in Schedule 11, it reforms the local air quality management framework to bring more public bodies into the process for planning to address any failures to meet air quality standards as what are called local air quality partners. Now, this is, I think, a really positive step. I think this will, in a sense, coordinate those different public bodies that are responsible for different sources and behaviours that lead to air pollution, whether it be bodies that regulate transport, the regulate highways. The Environment Agency is a main controller of industrial emissions, working in partnership with local authorities. Now, I think this is a really positive step for starting to think about this. You know, this challenge of coordination. So that I think is where there's a really positive step. I would say once the devil's in the detail a little bit, because of who's still ultimately responsible and and who might only need to make best practicable efforts to to, to do things, but certainly heading in a direction that that matches the problem better. We haven't yet seen a similar development for coordinating governance at the central, central government level. I mean, that's something that I have spoken about in parliamentary committees. And I think it's certainly something that Client Earth has made representations on as well. This idea of some kind of duty across government to coordinate or to work together in order to achieve air quality standards. And I think those things would be really important structurally. Those kinds of legal devices, I think, could be very important and powerful structurally to get the right actors working together to achieve air quality standards. Then, separately, that's about the administration. It's not a very headline point about getting the administration of air quality governance better but it's really important in the implementation to achieve air quality standards. The more headline point which is still really important is about the setting of those standards, what they are and what they should be in law. I've already made the point that there's there's no safe level for pm for exposure to particulate matter pollution. There will be continuing debates about what are the acceptable levels to set air quality standards. I imagine continuing pressure to make them more stringent, more in alignment with WHO guideline values. And this year, we are anticipating the next version of WHO's guidance on what is acceptable air quality globally. And we will have to think about that when we see that and react to that as well and think, is that well represented in our legal standards? In a sense, the Environment Bill allows for that because it allows new environmental standards to be set, albeit with a less stringent enforcement machinery behind it than the
3: retained EU law standards. Yeah, I I would agree. I guess our concern with how the government are framing the discussion over how ambitious it's going to be in the Environment Bill is that it's talking a lot about proportionality and the practicality of the balance in the economic and the and the political and social costs whereas as Eloisa said the legal tests set out by the high court in our second legal challenge 2017 really sort of spelt out the some really strong tests for what the government has to do when creating these plans and and subsequently local authorities that have been mandated to create plans as well and um, how they must ensure that you know they they are taking all the available measures to tackle the problem and meet legal limits in the shortest sum as possible, how they are ensuring that they are taking, not only just aiming to meet compliance, but also reduce exposure wherever wherever possible, and also making sure that meeting these legal limits are also likely and not just possible. And then really importantly, that came out from the High, high Court is that the primary determining factor for selecting measures is their efficacy and not actually political, social or economic costs. So a lot of government and local government decisions are often done on a cost-benefit analysis. And surely the the tests set out at the moment through the Ambient Air Quality Directive and transposed into domestic law actually is really strong because basically what you have to do is everything that you can technically do to meet these legal limits in the short of time as possible. And that really puts people's health as a determining factor rather than having to do the traditional cost-benefit analysis. And, and that's something that we're a bit concerned about, that the government now, in, in developing its own legal framework, is watering down, unfortunately, and creating a, a weaker system in, at, at the moment than we would like to see.
0: Under the new legal framework, who will actually be enforcing air quality standards? Obviously, Client Earth has done some amazing work in this area, taking the government to court. But in an ideal world, you'd have an independent regulator who actually has the powers to hold the government to account. Do you think that potentially the OEP, which is the new watchdog set up by the Environment Bill, could play this role? Or is there any provision for the enforcement of standards under the new legal framework?
3: Yeah, I guess we certainly, uh, from a client perspective, want to be able to make sure that civil society and the public can still hold government to account. But um, as you've noted, it's really important that we have this strong independent watchdog, um, the, the role that the European Commission played in making sure that K government is uh, meeting its legal duties and other public bodies as well. And that's another area of concern for us, that the Office of Environment Protection, uh, for Environmental Protection at the moment, in the way that it's been set up, is, it certainly hasn't got the teeth and it's certainly not strong or independent enough to ensure that uh, the government will be held to account. There's a lot of worrying amendments being proposed by government that are really undermining the purpose of the OEP in our view.
2: Uh, To play a little bit devil's advocate on that, in a sense, the answer to that, of who's going to enforce air quality standards is, (laughs) is more complicated than it should be, because we're going to have retained EU standards and then we're going to have new targets under the bill. And they will both give rise to different kinds of obligations. And the retained EU standards will be more enforceable because of their strict planning requirements that must achieve the targets than any new targets that come under the bill so you kind of have to go back to look at what the obligations are to see how effective any enforcement action can be and it's fragmented which is a bit frustrating but there you have it that's that's kind of the 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 legacy of of brexit in in that sense and moving on to a new system in terms of having an independent watchdog we still have the commission for ongoing breaches uh, that were existing prior to Brexit Day, and we have seen this month, March 2021, a judgment against the United Kingdom by the Commission for our breaches of air quality standards. So, in a sense, that watchdog has not yet gone away and and will continue to look over those breaches that have been ongoing and existed at the end of the implementation period. In terms of the OEP, we don't know exactly how the legislation is going to look at the end the Office for Environmental Protection. It has been set up as a new body that will have powers to receive complaints over failures to comply with environmental law, and to have enforcement powers. A lot will depend on the identity of that body, on how it develops a culture, on the kinds of test cases that it brings to determine the exact scope of its powers. And I think it will be different from the Commission. It will be sui generis in the the kind of the... British and legal and regulatory culture, specifically for England, may well extend to Northern Ireland as well. And I think whilst it doesn't have the clear lines of enforcement necessarily that the we've known from the EU Commission that we can that we recognise, it does have some powers. And I think the how it implements them and how they work in practice is yet to be determined.
1: And how can our listeners today and the public at large Push the government and local government to take action.
3: So I think what we've nice is that you know the, the the legal pressure has been very helpful in in getting government to actually have to act. It's taken a while to make them accept that, but we've made that the national courts have made that clear. But what's always harder to is that political will to be ambitious enough to do the right thing. Whilst the courts have been very clear about what the government needs to do. The government, in producing its plan, in our view, has always really gone for the bare minimum to see how it essentially scraped by in terms of uh, protecting people. So the 2015 plans were acknowledged to be woefully inadequate. The 2017 plans missed out a lot of local authorities that should have been included. And we're still in the process where even though the UK government has mandated through ministerial directions local authorities to act, uh, a lot of local authorities have missed their deadlines and are still Waiting to Well, we're still waiting for them to submit final plans. So basically, political will is a big part of this. And that's where I think it's really key people to be talking about air pollution and recognising it as a problem and highlighting it to others, but also really importantly, talking to their political representatives, talking to your councillors, talking to your MP, asking them what they are doing to protect people's health from from air pollution, explaining to them why it matters and what the benefits are. You know, clean air zones has been recognised by the government and many other local authorities as one of the most effective ways to quickly meet legal limits of air pollution in the, short, in the shortest time possible. But they can also be... You know, an, an opportunity to also put a pathway towards um, a zero emissions transport network, which we have to do as part of tackling climate change as well. So we shouldn't be looking to scrape by, um, as I think the government has has been has been doing. There's there's opportunities here to protect people's health and also really kind of push us forward in other areas as well. And and that will require people, yeah, talking about it and raising it as an issue, helping to drive that that political pressure that will hopefully push things over the line. I
2: think air pollution has always suffered from a PR problem because of its invisibility, except when it was visible. And that's why the great smog, (laughs) you know, in the middle of the 20th century provoked real change. Making it visible as an issue, making it comprehensible as an issue is what motivates legal change, political change. And I think that is, there is a huge role for the public. I think there is a real sense that public perception, understanding has grown hugely and concern has grown hugely in recent times. And now politicians represent the public. And so that filtering through of that concern is what will ultimately change the game on how government levers are deployed to tackle this problem and how well they are joined up.
1: Andrea Eloise, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us a really fascinating insight into what air pollution actually is, how complex it is and I think it's really shown us how it's inextricably linked to how we live our lives and how society is structured and therefore how a holistic understanding of air pollution is needed in ultimately tackling it.
0: You've been listening to Peel Pod. Thanks to Anastasia for editing this episode and Cuba for the excellent music. Check him out on Spotify. He's brilliant. The URL is in our podcast description.
1: Follow us on Twitter at PeelUK or visit our website www.peel.org.uk and if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe.